We're listening to the awesome story of electricity on BBC Horizon. BBC One, BBC Two, BBC Three, BBC Four. Oh, Trista, what did you know? What to know? Uh, yeah. Well, anyway, shout out to KMP Student Radio at the University of Arizona. KPYT, Bethkoyaki, Travel Radio, Travel Radio, Travel Radio. We're looking at shock and awe. Or you're listening, The Story of Electricity, Jim Al-Khalili, BBC Horizon. In many ways, it will be like the beginning of the 18th century, where our story begins. Our story begins. This is the Royal Society in London. In the early 1700s, after years in the wilderness, Isaac Newton finally took control of it after the death of his arch-enemy, Robert Hooke. Newton brought in his own people to the key jobs to help shore up his new position. The new head of demonstrations there was 35-year-old Francis Hawkesby. Notes from the Royal Society in 1705 reveal how hard Hawkesby tried to stamp his personality on its weekly meetings, producing ever more spectacular experiments to impress his masters. In November, he came up with this, a rotating glass sphere. He was able to remove the air from inside it using a new machine, the air pump. On his machine, a handle allowed him to spin the sphere. One by one, the candles in the room were put out. And Francis placed his hand against the sphere. The audience were about to see something amazing. Inside the glass sphere, a strange ethereal light began to form, dancing around his hand. A light no one had ever seen before. Oh, that's fantastic. You see a beautiful blue glow just marking out the shape of my hands, but then going right round the ball. It's as though there's something alive in there. difficult to really understand why this dancing blue light meant so much. But we have to bear in mind that at the time, natural phenomena like this were seen to be the work of the Almighty. This was still a period when, even in Isaac Newton's theory, God was constantly intervening in the conduct of the world. And so it made sense for a lot of people to interpret natural phenomena as Act of God. So when a mere mortal meddled with God's work, it was almost beyond rational comprehension. Hawkesby oh, never realised yeah. the full significance of his experiments. He lost interest in his glowing sphere and spent the last few years of his life building ever more spectacular experiments for Isaac Newton to test his other theories. He never realised that he'd unwittingly started an electrical revolution.
all hawks be, electricity had been merely a curiosity. The ancient Greeks rubbed amber, which they called electron, to get small shocks. Amber. Take your right hand, shake it out. How many people here want to learn faster? How many people want to remember more? Yeah? And even Queen Elizabeth I marveled at static electricity's power to lift feathers. But now, Hawksby's machine could make electricity at the turn of a handle. And you could see it. And perhaps even more importantly, his invention coincided with the birth of a new movement sweeping across Europe called the Enlightenment. Enlightened intellectuals used reason to question the world and their legacy was radical politics, iconoclastic art and natural philosophy or science. Ironically, Hawksby's new machine wasn't immediately embraced by most of these intellectuals, but instead by conjurers and street magicians. And those with an interest in electricity called themselves electricians. One story tells of a dinner party attended by an Austrian count. The electrician had placed some feathers on the table and then charged up a glass rod with a silk handkerchief. He then astonished the guests by lifting up the feathers with the rod. He then went on to charge himself up using one of Hawksby's electrical machines and gave the guests electric shocks, presumably to squeal with delight. But his guest of his response he placed a glass of cognac in the center of the table, tied himself up again, and lit it with a spark from the tip of his finger. There was a trick called the electrical beatification, in which the victim sits on an insulated chair, and above his head hangs a metal crown that doesn't quite touch his head. And then if the crown is electrified, then you get an electric discharge around the crown that looks exactly like a halo, which is why it's called the electric beatification. As England and the rest of Europe went electricity crazy, the spectacles grew bigger. And the more curious electricians started to ask more profound questions. Not only how can we make our shows bigger and better, but how can we control this amazing power? And for some, can this incredible electrical fire do more than just entertain? One of the first early breakthroughs would never have happened had it not been for a terrible accident. This is Charterhouse in the centre of London. Over the past 400 years, it's been a charitable home for young orphans and elderly gentlemen. And sometime in the 1720s, it also became home to one Stephen Gray. 
Stephen Gray had been a successful silk dyer from Canterbury. He was used to seeing electric sparks leap from the silk, and they fascinated him. Unfortunately, a crippling accident ended his career and left him destitute. But then he was offered a new life here at Charterhouse, and with it, the time to perform his own electrical experiments. Here at Charterhouse, possibly in this very room, the great chamber, Stephen Gray built a wooden frame. From the top beam, he suspended two swings using silk rope. He also had a device like this, a Hawkesby machine, for generating static electricity. Now, with a large audience in attendance, he got one of the orphan boys who lived here at Charterhouse to lie across the two swings. Gray placed some gold leaf in front of him. generated electricity and charged the boy through a connecting rod. Gold leaf, even feathers, leapt to the boy's fingers. Some of the audience claimed they could even see sparks flying out from his fingertips. Show business indeed. But to the curious and inquiring mind of Stephen Gray, this said something else as well. Electricity could move. From the machine, to the boy's body, through to his hands. But the silk rope stopped it dead. It meant the mysterious electrical fluid could flow through some things, but not through others. It led Gray to divide the world into two different kinds of substances. He called them insulators and conductors. Insulators held electric charge within them and wouldn't let it move, like the silk, or hair, glass, and resin, whereas conductors allowed electricity to flow through them, like the boy, or metals. It's a distinction which is still crucial even today. Just think of these electric pylons. They work on the same principle that Gray deduced nearly 300 years ago. The wires are conductive. The glass and ceramic objects between the wire and the metal of the pylon are insulators that stop the electricity leaking from the wires into the pylon and down to the earth. They're just like the silk ropes in Gray's experiments. Nutrition, it was a 
just so you had to like sold out just. Anyway, thanks for our three billion listeners. This is your ship. You're welcome, universe. You keep her alive. may have astounded all who saw it, but it had a frustrating drawback. Try as he might, Gray couldn't contain the electricity he was generating for long. It leapt from the machine to the boy and was quickly gone. The next step in our story came when we learnt how to store electricity. But that would take place not in Britain, but across the channel in mainland Europe. Electricians were just as busy as their British counterparts, and one centre for electrical research was here in Leiden, Holland. And it was here that a professor came up with an invention that many still regard as the most significant of the 18th century. One that, in some form or another, can still be found in almost every electrical device today. That professor was Pieter van Muschenbroek. Unlike Hawksby and Gray, Muschenbroek was born into academia. But ironically enough, his breakthrough came not because of his rigorous science, but because of a simple human mistake. He was trying to find a way to store electrical charge ready for his demonstrations. And you can almost hear his train of thought as he tries to figure this out. If electricity is a fluid that flows a bit like water, then maybe you can store it in the same way that you can store water. So Muschenbroek went to his laboratory to try to make a device to store electricity. Muschenbroek started to think literally. He took a glass jar and poured in some water. He then placed inside it a length of conducting wire, which was connected at the top to a Hawksby electric machine. Then he put the jar on an insulator to help keep the charge in the jar. He then tried to pour the electricity into the jar, produced by the machine, via the wire, down through into the water. But whatever he tried, the charge just wouldn't stay in the jar. Then one day, by accident, he forgot to put the jar on the insulator, but charged it instead while it was still in his hand. Finally, holding the jar with one hand, 
he touched the top with the other and received such a powerful electric shock he was almost thrown to the ground. He writes, it's a new but terrible experiment which I advise you never to try. <laughs> Nor would I, who've experienced it and survived by the grace of God, do it again for all the kingdom of France. <laughs> so I'm going to heed his advice, not touch the top, but instead see if I can get a spark off of it. The sheer power of the electricity which flew from the jar was greater than any seen before. Like and even more surprisingly, the jar could store that electricity for hours, even days. So in honour of the city where Muschenbrook made his discovery, they called it the Leiden Jar. And its fame swept across the world. And very rapidly from 1745 through the rest of the 1740s, the news of this, it's called Leiden Jar, goes global. It spreads from Japan in East Asia to Philadelphia in Eastern America. It became one of the first quick globalized scientific news items. But although the Leiden Jar became a global electrical phenomenon, no one had the slightest idea how it worked. You have a jar of electric fluid, and it turns out that you get a bigger shock from the jar if you allow the electric fluid to drain away to the earth. Why is the shock bigger if the jar's leaking? Why isn't the shock bigger if you make sure that all the electric fluid stays inside the jar? That was how mid-18th-century electrical philosophers were faced with this challenge. Electricity was without doubt a fantastical wonder. It could shock and spark. It could now be stored and moved around. Yet what electricity was, how it worked, and why it did all these things, was nothing less than a complete mystery. Within 10 years, a new breakthrough was to come from an unexpected quarter. From a man politically and philosophically at war with the London establishment. And even more shockingly for the British electrical elite, that man was merely a colonial, an American. This painting of Benjamin Franklin hangs here at the Royal Society in London. Franklin was a passionate supporter of American emancipation and saw the pursuit of rational science and particularly electricity as a way of rolling back ignorance, false idols and ultimately his intellectually elitist colonial masters. And this is mixed with um, a profoundly egalitarian democratic idea that Franklin and his allies have, which is, this is a phenomenon open to everyone. Here's something that the elite doesn't really understand, and we might be able to understand it. Here's something that the elite can't really control, but we might be able to control. 
control, and here's something above all, which is the source of superstition. And we, rational, egalitarian, potentially democratic intellectuals, we will be able to reason it out without appearing to be the slaves of magic or mystery. So Franklin decided to use the power of reason to rationally explain what many considered a magical phenomenon, lightning. This is probably one of the most famous scientific images of the 18th century. It shows Benjamin Franklin, the heroic scientist, flying a kite in a storm, proving that lightning is electrical. But although Franklin proposed this experiment, he almost certainly never performed it. Much more likely is that his it. most significant experiment was another one, which he proposed but didn't story. even conduct. In fact, it didn't even happen in America. It took place here in a small village north of Paris called Marly-Leville. The French adored Franklin, especially his anti-British politics, and they took it upon themselves to perform his other lightning experiments without him. I've come to the very spot where that experiment took place. In May 1752, Georges-Louis Leclerc, known across France as the Comte de Buffon, and his friend Thomas-Francois de Delibar, erected a 40-foot metal pole, more than twice as high as this one, held in place by three wooden staves just outside Delibar's house here in marley le -Ville. The metal pole rested at the bottom inside an empty wine bottle. Franklin's big idea had been that the long pole would capture the lightning, pass it down the metal rod, and store it in the wine bottle at the base, which worked as a Leiden jar. Then he could confirm what lightning actually was. All his French followers had to do was wait for a storm. And then on May 23rd, the heavens opened. At 12.20, a loud thunderclap was heard as lightning hit the top of the pole. An assistant ran to the bottle. A spark leapt across between the metal and his finger with a loud crack and a sulfurous smell burning his hand. The spark revealed lightning for what it really was. It was the same as the electricity made by man. It's hard to overestimate the significance of this moment. Nature had been mastered. Not only that, but the wrath of God itself had been brought under the control of mankind. It was a kind of heresy. Franklin's experiment was very important because it showed that lightning storms produce or are produced by electricity and that you can bring this um, electricity down. That electricity is a force of nature that's waiting out there to be tapped. Next, Franklin turned his rational mind to another question. 
why the Leyden jar made the bigger sparks when it was held in the hand. Why didn't all the electricity just drain away? And drawing on his experience as a successful businessman, he saw something no one else had. That, like money in a bank, electricity can be in credit, what he called positive, or debit, negative. For him, the problem of the Leiden jar is a problem of accountancy. Franklin's idea was every body has around it an electrical atmosphere. And there's a natural amount of electric fluid around each body. If there's too much, we'll call it positive. If there's too little, we'll call it negative. And nature is organized so the positives and the negatives always want to balance out, like an ideal American economy. Franklin's insight was that electricity was actually just positive charge flowing to cancel out negative charge. And he believed this simple idea could solve the mystery of the lightning jar. As the jar is charged up, negative electrical charge is poured down the wire and into the water. If the jar rests on an insulator, a small amount builds up in the water. But if instead the jar is held by someone as it's being charged, positive electric charge is sucked up through their body from the ground to the outside of the jar, trying to cancel out the negative charge inside. But the positive and negative charges are stopped from cancelling out by the glass, which acts as an insulator. So instead, the charge just grows and grows on both sides of the glass. Then, touching the top of the jar with the other hand, completes a circuit, allowing the negative charge on the inside to pass through the hand to the positive on the outside, finally cancelling it out. The movement of this charge causes a massive shock and often a spark. The modern equivalent of the Leiden jar is this. And it's one of the most ubiquitous of electronic components. It's found everywhere. There are a number of smaller ones scattered around on this circuit board from a computer. They help smooth out electrical surges, protecting sensitive components, even in the most modern electric circuit. Solving the mystery of the Leiden jar and recognizing lightning as merely a kind of electricity were two great successes for Franklin and the new Enlightenment movement. But the forces of trade and commerce, which helped fuel the Enlightenment, were about to throw up a new and even more perplexing electrical mystery. A completely new kind of electricity. English Channel. 
By the 17th and 18th century, a good fraction of the world's wealth flowed up this stretch of water from all corners of the British Empire and beyond on its way to London. Spices from India, sugar from the Caribbean, wheat from America, tea from China. But of course, it wasn't just commerce. New plants and animal specimens from all over the world came flooding into London, including one that particularly fascinated the electricians. Called the torpedo fish, it'd been the stuff of fishermen's tails. Its sting, it was said, was capable of knocking a grown man down. But as the electricians started to investigate the sting, they realized it felt strangely similar to a shock from a Leiden jar. Could its sting actually be an electric shock? At first, many people dismissed the torpedo fish's shock as a cold. Some said it was probably just the fish biting. Others, that it couldn't be a shock because without a spark, it just wasn't electricity. But for most, this was a very strange and inexplicable new mystery. And it would take one of the oddest, yet most brilliant characters in British science to begin to unlock the secrets of the torpedo fish. This is the only picture in existence of the pathologically shy but exceptional Henry Cavendish. This one only exists because an artist sketched his coat as it hung on a peg, then filled in the face from memory. His family were fantastically rich. They were the Devonshires, who still owned Chatsworth House in Derbyshire. But Henry Cavendish decided to turn his back on his family's wealth and status to live in London near his beloved Royal Society where he could quietly pursue his passion for experimental science. When he heard about the electric torpedo fish, he was intrigued. A friend wrote to him, On this, my first experience of the effect of the torpedo, I exclaimed that this is certainly electricity. But how? And to work out how a living thing could produce electricity, he decided to make his own artificial fish. These are his plans. Two Leiden jars shaped like the fish, which were buried under sand. When the sand was touched, they discharged, giving a nasty shock. His model helped convince him that the real torpedo fish was electric. But it still left him with a nagging problem. Although both the real fish and Cavendish's artificial one gave powerful electric shocks, the real fish never sparked. Cavendish was perplexed. How could it be the same kind of electricity if they didn't both do the same kinds of things? Cavendish spent the winter of 1773 in his laboratory, trying to come up with an answer. And in the spring, he had a brainwave. Cavendish's ingenious answer was to point out a subtle distinction between the amount of electricity and its intensity. 
The real fish produced the same kind of electricity, it's just that it was less intense. Now, for a physicist like me, this marks a crucial turning point, because it's the moment when two genuinely innovative scientific ideas first crop up. What Cavendish refers to as the amount of electricity we now call electric charge. And his intensity is what we call the potential difference or voltage. So the Leiden jar's shock was high voltage but low charge, whereas the fish was low voltage and high charge. And it's possible to actually measure that. Hiding at the bottom of this tank under the sand is the torpedo marmorata, and it's an electric ray. You can just see its eyes protruding from the sand. This is a fully grown female, and I'm going to try and measure the electricity it gives off with this bait. I've got this fish connected to a metal rod and hooked up to an oscilloscope to see if I can measure the voltage as it catches its prey. So here goes. What happened? Thanks for 3 billion listeners. My name is Trista. I'm a Mighty Specs producer. I cover all the Predmox podcasts as well as new documentaries on ancient history. Because there's a lot of stuff being discovered. And uh, I'm an Oxford psychology tutor. And I gladly accepted. I'm an award winning Berkeley Barkley. That's the British way to pronounce his name. Berkeley, UC Berkeley is named after the philosopher. Yeah, we were just talking about Berkeley, the philosopher, which UC Berkeley named after. UC Berkeley. <laughs> anyway, we're listening to some great stuff. History of electricity. Oh shit. Oh my god, fuck off. Anyway. Only Googleable on the first page when you look at Kamala Harris's record. All of those things. I'd have to dig very deep to see what those issues and problems were with her record. So then the question is, hey, why didn't why didn't anybody in the media ask her these questions? You basically sank any hope that she had of being president because you opened up this discussion that many people are not aware of about a prosecution record and the things that she's done that are absolutely illegal, like forcing people to work as labor, as cheap labor for the state to fight wildfires after they're supposed to be released. Exactly. They did their time. They did their time, and she kept Mm -hmm. them in prison to use them essentially as slave labor for the state, putting their own lives at risk forcibly. The, the thing about um, my Russian exchange porn? with her on that debate stage, um, when you take a step back, you got a question like, 
all of those things I brought up on her record, you easily Googleable on the first page when you look at Kamala Harris's record. All of those things. I'd have to dig very deep to see what those issues and problems were with her record. So then the question is, hey, why didn't why didn't anybody in the media ask her these questions? You basically sank any hope that she had of being president because you opened up this discussion that many people are not aware of about a prosecution record and the things that she's done that are absolutely illegal. Yeah. Like we would later learn that many of the plagues uh-huh. uh, were from a flea. So the flea would get infected and would bite you and you'd get the plague. Okay. Okay. The plagues have killed more people than practically any, more than wars. Okay. Wow. All right. So now watch what happens. Where did the fleas come from? We would later learn they came from rats and mice. So if your house had rats or mice, and mice were common, look at old Renaissance paintings. There's mice in the corners of the paintings. It's yeah. really funny just to see this. All right, so now watch. If you owned a cat, you didn't have mice. You didn't get the plague. You didn't get the plague. No, wait a minute. Who owned cats? Well, there are many women that owned cats. So women didn't get the plague, and they were therefore sorcerers. They were witches. Witches. And some of them are. And, and you still associate a cat with a witch. Yeah. To this day. To this day. Would later learn that many of the plagues uh-huh. uh, were from a flea. So the flea would get infected and would bite you, and you'd get the plague. Okay. Okay. The plagues have killed more people than practically any, more than wars. Okay. Wow. All right. So now watch what happens. Where did the fleas come from? We would later learn they came from rats and mice. So if your house had rats or mice, and mice were common, look at old Renaissance paintings. There's mice in the corners of the paintings. Yeah. Yeah. You basically you sank any hope that she had of being president. It would later. It was like a nigga wife me. This huge cave was built by giants. Deep in the country of Ecuador, a man named Father Creeping discovered a cave called Cueva Creeping. de los Tayos. The cave had huge walls and an endless network, as if it was built for someone or something way bigger. Within the cave, a giant library containing hundreds of sheets of gold, platinum, and other precious metals were found. But the question is, who put them there? Furthermore, the Ecuadorian authorities disputed this discovery. However, it was later revealed that they too launched intensive investigations into these caves. Are they hiding this information because the origins of this cave is said to be able to reveal the errors and inconsistencies in our history? This leads many people to wonder if... This huge cave was built by giants. Deep in the country of Ecuador, a man named Father Creeping discovered a cave called Cueva de los Tayos. The cave had huge walls and an endless network, as if it was built for someone or something way bigger. Within the cave, a giant library containing hundreds of sheets of gold. A city like this huge cave was built. A city like London, which had a population of roughly 50,000 in the 16th century, there were cities of that size all over the Amazon. Wow. Huge numbers of them. And a possible total population of the Amazon that exceeded 20 million people. What? Yes, 20 million. This is the, the latest uh, evidence from the Amazon. And then you ask yourself, how did they do that? How did they feed 20 million people in the Amazon? Because it's a fact, rainforest soils are poor. How did they feed all these people? The answer was, they invented a soil 
And that soil has a name. It's called terra preta. Archaeologists refer to it as Amazonian dark earths or Amazonian black earth. It's a man-made soil. It's thousands of years old. It's full of microbes that are not found in adjoining soil. It's based around biochar. Uh, and you can take a handful of 8,000-year-old terra preta and you can add it to barren soil and that soil will instantly become fertile. A city like London, which had a population of roughly 50,000 in the 16th century, there were cities of that size all over the Amazon. Huge numbers of them. And a possible total population of the Amazon that exceeded 20 million people. What? Yes, 20 million. This is the, the latest uh, evidence from the Amazon. And then you ask yourself, how did they do that? How did they feed 20 million people in the Amazon? Because it's a fact, rainforest soils are poor. How did they feed all these people? The answer was, they invented a soil. And that soil has a name. It's called terra preta. Archaeologists refer to it as Amazonian dark earths or Amazonian black earth. It's a man-made soil. It's thousands of years old. It's full of microbes that are not found in adjoining soil. It's based around biochar. Uh, and you can take a handful of 8,000-year-old terra preta and you can add it to barren soil and that soil will instantly become fertile. A city like London, which had a population of roughly 50,000 in the 16th century, there were cities of that size all over the Amazon. Huge numbers of them. And a possible total population of the Amazon that exceeded 20 million people. What? Yes, 20 million. This is the, the latest uh, evidence from the Amazon. And then you ask yourself, how did they do that? How did they feed 20 million people in the Amazon? Because it's a fact, rainforest soils are poor. How did they feed all these people? The answer was... They invented a soil, and that soil has a name. It's called terra preta. Archaeologists refer to it as Amazonian dark earths or Amazonian black earth. It's a man-made soil. It's thousands of years old. It's full of microbes that are not found in adjoining soil. It's based around biochar. Uh, and you can take a handful of 8,000-year-old terra preta, and you can add it to barren soil, and that soil will instantly become fertile. A city like London, which had a population of roughly 50,000 in the 16th century, there were cities of that size all over the Amazon. Huge numbers of them. And a possible total population of the Amazon that exceeded 20 million people. What? Yes, 20 million. This is the, the latest uh, evidence from the Amazon. And then you ask yourself, how did they do that? How did they feed 20 million people in the Amazon? Because it's a fact, rainforest soils are poor. How did they feed all these people? The answer was... They invented a soil, and that soil has a name. It's called terra preta. Archaeologists refer to it as Amazonian dark earths or Amazonian black earth. It's a man-made soil. It's thousands of years old. It's full of microbes that are not found in adjoining soil. It's based around biochar. Uh, and you can take a handful of 8,000-year-old terra preta, and you can add it to barren soil, and that soil will instantly become fertile. A city like London, which had a population of roughly 50,000 in the 16th century, there were cities of that size all over the Amazon. Huge numbers of them. And a possible total population of the Amazon that exceeded 20 million people. What? Yes, 20 million. This is the, the latest uh, evidence from the Amazon. And then you ask yourself, how did they do that? How did they feed 20 million people? Yeah, William, hoy, esta noche. Esta noche. William? Uh, William y Rubio ¿Eh? van a su casa a ver uh, para, para cómo limpiar 
This will be my first time to hear Something I'm very proud of. African-American unemployment stands at the lowest rate ever recorded. Do you know this mysterious dog breed? Highly prized not only for their intelligence and athleticism, but also for their unique vocalizations. Which on February 1st, 1947, the expedition called High Jump, scheduled for eight months of work, arrived in Antarctica in the area of Queen Maud Land. Rear Admiral Horse Expedition was considered strictly scientific, but it was funded by the U.S. Navy. They went to Antarctica, accompanied by the aircraft carrier Casablanca with 25 planes and seven helicopters on board a submarine an icebreaker and 12 tankers on which there were 4,800 people at that time the official statement was that main mission was to find and other resources the story was later changed to military hands-on training space Meanwhile, we can't help but wonder why did they need 32 planes, 13 ships, and nearly 5,000 people, many of whom died afterwards. On February 1st, 1947, the expedition called High Jump, scheduled for eight months of work, arrived in Antarctica in the area of Queen Maud Land. Rear Admiral Board's expedition was considered strictly scientific, what did they hide in but it was funded by the U.S. Navy. They went to Antarctica, accompanied by the aircraft carrier Casablanca, with 25 planes and seven helicopters on board, a submarine, an icebreaker, and 12 tankers on which there were 4,800 people. At that time, the official statement was that the expedition's main mission was to find coal and other resources. The story was later changed to military hands-on training, preparation and establishment of an intelligence base. Meanwhile, we can't help but wonder why did they need 32 planes, 13 ships and nearly 5,000 people, many of whom died afterwards. On February 1st, 19... Olmex first settled in San Lorenzo, Tenochtitlan, around 1500 BCE. The city was one of two major Olmec cities during their existence. They built their city on an elevated ridge that protected crops from flooding on an island in the middle of the Coatzacoalcos River. 1500 to 900 BCE, San Lorenzo was an important trading center that enriched the Olmec civilization. Numerous items not native to the area were discovered during the archaeological excavations. Fur, Olmec. pelts, and seashells are examples of trade goods such as jade, obsidian, serpentinite, and basalt. Serpentinite. As of yet, Serpent. no Olmec religious buildings have been discovered. Nevertheless, archaeologists have found several buildings on Olmec sites that probably served religious purposes. Olmecs first settled in San Lorenzo, Tenochtitlan, around 1500 BCE. The city was one of two... <sighs> Is there something you need? I don't know. I don't have a sixth sense for when you need help. You're gonna have to vocalize. I went into Songdung, which is the world's largest cave. That was only discovered in 1995. It's this massive opening, six miles of underground cave. You know, you don't see daylight for two days. Six miles. It, it's... It, you should look at the pictures of this place. Mm -hmm. You'll love it. I mean, it's just this... It, it looks like something out of Avatar. I mean, this cave 
You can fit New York City skyscrapers inside of it. It's so big. Ooh. It has its own weather system. What? Yeah. It's it's. Where is this? Song. So it's in the Annamite Mountain Range between Vietnam and Laos. Let's see this. Oh my god. Yeah. There's you know Hang Song Doong. That's the entrance to it. And like look at the size of it. The scope of it. Are those yeah, those are little tents. Ooh. People. Oh, those are tents. There's full lake systems in there. And, oh my uh, god, that's inside the tent? I mean, that's inside the cave? Yeah, look at the wedding cake, that one right there. It's this pyres, that's a person standing on top of that little pyre, uh, right there. Oh scale. my god. Yeah. That's insane. It's insane. More people have summited Everest than have been through that cave. I went into Song Dung, which is the world's largest cave. That was only discovered in 1995. It's this massive opening, six miles of underground cave. You know, you don't see daylight for two days. Six miles. It, it's, it, you should look at the pictures of this place. You'll love it. I mean, it's just this, it looks like something out of Avatar. I mean, this cave, you can fit New York City skyscrapers inside of it. It's so big. Ooh. It has its own weather system. What? Yeah, it's, it's. Where is this? Song, so it's in the Annamite Mountain Range between Vietnam and Laos. Let's see this. Oh my God. Yeah, there's, you know, Hang Song Dung. That's the entrance to it. And like, look at the size of it, the scope of it. Are yeah, those, those are little tents. This brings us to Moses. Who was Moses exactly? And where did he come from? Yeah. What if we were to tell you that there's a rumor that Moses was actually the 18th dynastic ruler of ancient Egypt? Now, bear with us for a moment with this till we explain. Moses, as most people know, was hidden away from birth because his bloodline was a danger to the Egyptian establishment at the time. He was educated in such a way that he was seen as a wealthy, high-ranking Egyptian. Now, when we compare the early life of Moses to that of Akhenaten, there are shocking similarities. And get this, when Akhenaten was exiled from Egypt because he believed in the one true God, he became known as Moses. Moses is actually a term which means the pretender to the throne. Because Akhenaten, Moses, was Pharaoh, he was allowed. This brings us to Moses. Who was Moses exactly? And where did he come from? What if we were to tell one of my favorite stories came out of uh, an all-girls university in Massachusetts where they were trying to pick a president of the student body or whatever, and uh, one of the girls who went to that school decided that she identified as a man, so she changed her name. And uh, I don't believe there was any hormones or anything involved. I think it, she just changed her name. She called herself Masculine of Center Genderqueer, changed her name to a masculine name, uh, ran for president of whatever the hell this is. I think it was Wilson. Yes, I believe you're right. Won and then was denounced by the rest of the class because now she was a white male, so she was a part of the patriarchy, and she was a part of the whole problem with society, and that she should not be allowed, or he should not be allowed to take that position, which I just... Well, I, that's a really good example. We read it on air, and I couldn't stop laughing. Right. <laughs> One of my favorite stories came out of uh, an all-girls university. In DNA is a storage medium. In other words, it's a hard drive. This is peer-reviewed science, by the way, guys. One gram of DNA, which is enough to put a little tiny drop on the tip of your finger, can store 700 terabytes of data. Zeros and ones that make your phone work and make your computer work. Zeros and one bits of data, zeros and ones, can be stored on DNA. We're walking USB drives. Literally, inside of your body right now, you can store 13.5 
billion years of data. Ironically, that's how old the universe is. You literally have all the information stored in your body from the beginning of time until this very moment inside of you. So when people say the universe is in you, it's not just a figure of speech. Like, the universe is really in you. Everything that was here from the beginning is here right now. Nothing's been added, nothing's been removed due to the law of thermodynamics. Energy cannot be destroyed, it's going to be transformed. You're just here right now in this particular form at this particular moment. But all the information in your DNA will go back if you had the capability of decoding it, will allow you to find this out. DNA is a storage medium. In other words, Binoculars. Jupiter with moons. I'm recording this video using my binoculars. Celestron 25X70 with the mobile phone adapter attached to one of its eyepiece. Jupiter with Callista Visible in C. I'm recording this video using my binoculars. Celestron 25X Number one, okay. learn to be happy with yourself. There is no one else for you. There is evidence of Uruk culture on cylinder seals, measuring jugs, and architecture played a significant role. In the north, they traveled to Anatolia, today's Turkey. In the east, they founded the city of Susa. In the west, they reached Egypt via the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. The Urukians came to the north of Mesopotamia to participate in the trade in copper and silver which had its center in Anatolia with its abundant copper and silver. A coppersmith's workshop was discovered in Uruk along with ceramics from northern Mesopotamia, Anatolia, and Transcaucasia. Their tools, knowledge of production processes, architecture, eating habits, and gods were taken by the Urukians. There is evidence of Uruk culture on cylinder seals, measuring jugs, and architecture, which suggests that the inhabitants played a significant role. In the north, they traveled to Anatolia, today's Turkey. In the east, they founded the city of Susa. In the west, they reached Egypt via the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea. The Urukians came to the north of Mesopotamia to participate in the trade in silver which had its center in Anatolia with its abundant copper and silver mines. A coppersmith's workshop was discovered in Uruk along with ceramics from northern Mesopotamia, Anatolia, and Transcaucasia. M. Flinders Petrie is by far an essential reading source on anything to do with tubular drilling in Asia. Millions of Americans are losing their homes every <laughs>
It is pretty weird. Never seen a cloud move that fast ever. The Air Force testing their technology out on the public. Moving weird. I've never seen that shit like that.